0: Welcome to Landscape Photography World, the podcast for everyone passionate about landscape photography. I'm Grant Swinburne and I'll be your host on this show talking to landscape photographers about their motivations, likes and dislikes. Ben Horn is a landscape photographer based in California, known for his large format and film images from the southwest of the USA. Ben's creative mission revolves around crafting serene, structured depictions of nature. His preference for large-format film photography stems from its intrinsic constraints, which impose a strong sense of discipline and provide guidance in his artistic process. The majority of his portfolio comprises 8x10 film captures, with a few earlier works shot on 4x5 film. In late 2009, Ben embarked on a journey to document his adventures through video journals. As his audience has grown, he's dedicated himself to enhancing the quality and content of these videos. Ben's ideal is to transport viewers to the heart of his experiences, showing what he witnessed and felt at each destination. We talk about Ben's journey into full-time photography, his creative process and experiences with using large format cameras. We also cover some of the challenges and opportunities present in the photography industry, including the impact of AI and how it's changing people's perceptions of image authenticity. We also touch on Ben's goal of educating photographers to respect nature when shooting and the role of photography in environmental advocacy, along with lots more. I hope you enjoy the show. G'day Ben, welcome to Landscape Photography World. How are you going? doing good just feeling feeling a little worn out from having gone
1: cycling earlier which is something i've been getting into but just that nice
0: relaxy feeling afterwards but how about you how are you doing yeah i'm doing doing fine sitting here in my motorhome up in airley beach in queensland so it's up in the tropics it's near the great barrier reef it's it's quite a nice little spot nice why don't you start, I know a lot of people will have heard you on other podcasts or seen some of your work somewhere. Why don't you start with telling people who you are and then we can talk a little bit about why you do what you do.
1: Yeah. So I, I've i been doing photography for quite a while now. I, at this point, ever since the pandemic, I've been doing this as like a full-time job. But I started putting videos on YouTube back in 2009. Just as a way of telling the story of the trips, and and I, I work with a, a large format camera, which is a little bit different. So it's a slower way of working, different way of working. And I've been basically just doing that ever since since 2009 when I fell in love with large format. And I love telling the story of the trips. I love uh, producing the videos, and I call them video journals as opposed to vlogs or stuff like that, because it's it really is just a a. a it's a video journal. It's the easiest way to, to describe it. We're just trying to tell more of the accurate story of it. But I, I do all landscape photography. I travel to places that are within driving range. So I live in San Diego, California in the US, and I'm about an eight-hour drive from Zion National Park, which is one of my favorite areas, and about six or seven hours from Death Valley. So I, I don't travel abroad. I just go to areas that are fairly close to me, uh, a lot of desert areas, and uh, spend some time looking for subjects that connect with me for one reason or another. And uh, just, I enjoy taking my time and going about things in a very slow and
0: meticulous way. Is is the best way of saying it? Okay, I'm I'm interested in obviously the choice of large format. Why you fell in love with it, and and so forth. But I'm interested in what attracts you to that slowing down is, is that a, uh, I I guess a relaxation method or is it something deeper and, and, and something different to that? I think just when you slow down and when you
1: take your time, you just make better decisions. I think like uh, my approach for most subjects is to find a subject that speaks to me for one reason or another and then to ask myself, when is a light going to be good on the subject? Maybe it'll be later that day. Maybe it'll be perhaps a different time of year even. Maybe it'll rely on certain conditions. But I'll just catalog these various things. And at some point, I come up with a plan for a particular subject. I'll go out, I'll set up my camera, I'll wait for the light. And as you very well know, when, when the light changes very quickly in nature, whether it's those little bits right around sunset or sunrise and you can have 30 seconds of good light. But if you're already sitting there with a camera, if the composition's already set and there's no scrambling around, it's a much more peaceful experience. It's a much more contemplative sort of experience where you can just sit there, take it all in and know that those decisions are made. And so for me, it's about having no regrets when it comes to the composition It's about knowing that I did the best that I could. And not every photo, well, no photo is going to be perfect, but not every photo is going to turn out necessarily exactly the way I want it. But I'll know that I did my best on it. So it's a no regrets philosophy, I guess you would say. And it leads to at least to Mm -hmm. photos I'm quite satisfied with.
0: Okay. Okay. So, that large format was that about slowing down or was it that that just about the quality of the image because obviously the larger the format the more light you can get on a on a, a collector whether it's an electronic sensor or a, a film what was it about the large format that really grabbed you initially
1: i tried out large format because A friend of mine had suggested it to me as a easier way of doing things. This was back in probably 2008, maybe 2007. And I just wasn't really happy with the quality that I was getting with the digital cameras at that time. And so one of the things people said was, you just take your pictures, a bunch of pictures, you stitch them together, you get higher resolution. But that was a Far more complicated way of doing things. Um, you couldn't simply put a rectangle around a composition and just capture it with one click of a shutter. Um, but with large format, it was—it's yep. actually fairly simple. It, it sounds weird because you look at these cameras; they look like they are first of all from the 1800s because they are. Um, uh-huh. But there are these old designs, big, big wooden boxes, <laughs> exactly. But now at least they there's a lot of very high-tech materials in terms of a lot of carbon fiber in them and and stuff like that so they're made to be very lightweight now but it's the process of working with it is actually incredibly simple and it makes the experience in the field so much it's more rewarding i guess you would say because if i go out and i find a subject. I wait for the light. I have the right light. I have a composition. I'm happy with one simple click of the shutter. I know that I've captured everything that I need. I go back to camp that evening with a sense of satisfaction, even though I have no clue how it turned out. But I guess that's the other part of it is that you you don't really know how you're doing on a trip. You can guess how the photos are turning out. You hope that they're turning out the way that you want them to. But when you've got an idea from the experience that you've got. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, exactly. It's the sort of thing where you have a feeling for how they're going to be, but there's always surprises. There are those photos that you sure. think are going to be really good. Then you see them when you get the film back from the lab and eh, they're okay. But maybe there is that one experimental photo mm-hmm. that I honestly didn't think much of when I was taking the photo. I thought it was just something I was doing to kill some time while waiting for something else. But then when I see that one, especially since it's a photo, I didn't really think much of in the moment. But when I see the film, it's something where I'm like, oh, wow, this is, this turned out really nice. So there's always that element of surprise and the quality of it is it's the best you can get basically, but that's not really the reason to work with large format the reason is that it slows you down. It's very process oriented. And when you see that photo mm-hmm. at the end of the day, not the end of the day, so it it's makes not you developed. Or, yes, yes. You definitely yep, work yep. for the images. So you d- I think that builds a greater sense of satisfaction in the final product.
0: Yeah, yeah. So are you developing your own negatives uh, through to the final print or are you using a lab or how are you actually doing your processing? So it depends on the film. If I am
1: working with black and white film, I can develop that myself. I actually have a uh, developing machine that can do that. And that same machine can also do color transparency film, but I'm perfectly happy leaving that work to the, there's a lab that's only about a 45 minute drive from my house that can develop that film. And it's priced reasonably because I don't want to mess that up and they can have even better consistency than probably I was able to do. So I use a lab for the color transparency film, which is most of what I shoot, but
0: for black and white, I can develop that myself. Okay. In terms of this way of working, is that about setting creative challenges for yourself? Or is it more about thinking about your creativity in a different way?
1: A lot of it's about limitation because when we are limited in one way or another, It gives Mm -hmm. us both a sense of direction, but also it makes us get a little bit more creative in the same way that if a person's shooting digital, if you work with prime lens versus zoom lens, you're going to think about that photo a little bit more as opposed to just going to that quick first instinct, which isn't always necessarily the best. And so it's that limitation that really helps to, I think, come up with creative solutions for a particular issue. Um, I always look at each composition as though it's like this puzzle that one needs to solve. And there's always a, it may not be the perfect answer, but there is an ideal solution somewhere in there. And I think the more you slow down and the more limitations you have, it helps you get a little more creative, but there's another aspect to it as well, which is, there are so many things that I cannot do with the camera that I have. If it's a little bit windy, I really can't take a picture because the camera is going to shake in the wind. I'm going to get a blurry photo. If yeah. I wanted to set up a photo before sunrise, I really can't because the ground glass on the back is too dark. You just can't see an image, let alone focus or set a composition. And when there are yeah. those moments when the light is changing very quickly and things are just how things can be, where things can just change really rapidly out in nature. In those sort of moments, basically I can either choose to shoot something that is within the range of what I can do, or I can just set the camera aside and just enjoy the moment. And those are sometimes some of the most memorable times out there. There's always something I can find to photograph, but when the conditions really start getting incredibly windy and such... Sometimes it's nice just to relax and take that as an opportunity of nature saying, hey, just sit back, relax, enjoy
0: the show, maybe take a photo in the morning. Yeah, okay, okay. Do you ever have that pang of, not regret, but pang of saying, oh, I wish I had a a DSLR or digital camera that I could work with?
1: I had a little bit of that feeling in, it was 2020, just before the fall in 2020, and I was thinking, maybe I'm missing out on something. Maybe I should get a, a digital kit just to see if I'm missing something. And so I bought, it was a Sony full frame and a couple lenses, a couple of zoom lenses just to get a feel for everything. Sure, sure. And it was fun to work with. But what I learned from that experiment is that it just, having the ability to take a picture of anything, anywhere, isn't really what I need to be creative. I need to force myself to slow down in the way that large format is. Yeah, and the yeah. pictures I did take with that, there's one picture in particular I took in, it was in Zion National Park. It was these ponderosa pine trees yep. <clears throat> with, with some maples with some fall color around their base and it was set against a canyon wall. I took a picture of it and it's the same sort of scene that I could have photographed on large format. So it wasn't any different. It wasn't experimenting in any way and i like that scene so the following year when i went back there i just set up my eight by ten camera in the same spot and actually took an even better photo of that same scene so the stuff i was photographing on the digital it just wasn't i wasn't experimenting like i thought i would and so i ended up actually selling the whole kit and i have not i have never once regretted uh selling it so it's just it's just not what I need to do the sort of work that I want to be satisfied with.
0: Mm -hmm. Do you think it's important to have goals or projects to work on in your photography?
1: I was thinking about this the other day and I don't really have specific goals. I don't really have specific projects, but what I was thinking about in terms of projects is that there are oftentimes subjects that I will find in the field And that particular subject will become a bit of a multi-year project in a way where I'll find something. Maybe I'll set up the camera, take a picture, but it just, it wasn't quite what I was hoping for. Maybe the light wasn't as great, or maybe there was something just wasn't quite right. So I'll go back the next year and I'll photograph it again. And usually on that second time, I end up getting the photo that I want. So even this year in particular, there are two photos that I've taken, one on a backpacking trip and then one on a visit to Death Valley. And those subjects are one that I found the year before. And in one case, I did take a photo of it. The light just wasn't very good. In the other case, Mm. I just made note of that location saying, I'm going to come back and stand in the same spot in a year and take a picture because I'm already worn out on this trip. It's towards the end of the trip anyways. And I don't feel like lugging my camera back in here to the same spot. So I think in terms of projects, for me, oftentimes it's a particular subject I have in mind that escaped me for one reason or another mm. that I want to go back and take photos of. But I know that people have all sorts of different projects in mind. Is that something that you have
0: that that you do for your own photography? I do sometimes. So there's a couple of long-term things I've been working on that yeah like you say multi-year there's a a series of swimming pools so they were man-made some have concrete but they're usually around a relatively natural cavity in the rocks along Mm -hmm. the coast in my local area in sydney and there's 35 of them and throughout my shooting i still haven't shot every single one of them yeah and i haven't I've gone to some and the light hasn't been quite right, or there hasn't been a a, a nice sky. It's just been clear blue sky, or in, in other cases, just a set in gray overcast, which it's not, not always the great taking seascapes. Sometimes again, it forces you to be creative and forces you to look at that. But uh, I guess for me, the goal is to eventually get a collection of shots that I'm happy with from each of those. 35 pools and yeah. do something with it, whether it ends up as a book or just a, a portfolio or a gallery exhibition or something. I haven't worked out yet, but that's one of the things that hovers around. But then I'm also quite opportunistic. If I see something when I'm out of the morning or a, an evening and it catches my, eye, then I'll do that.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it, it it seems like with projects, it oftentimes there's some sort of end product involved, or not, maybe not necessarily like product, but there's there there is some sort of end goal. Yeah, and I, I think for me, since I do these print portfolios each year, it's just I need to have enough photos to fill those portfolios, and I guess that's the cycle that keeps me going out there and knowing the prospect of oh, there is that one particular subject that I didn't quite get last year. I want to get that this year, but it's not as though I'm going to be putting all those particular photos together in in a collection in terms of uh, the ones I went back for year by year. So that's cool that you have something that is local to you that you're able to perhaps at some point create some sort of project in mind with all those images.
0: Yeah, I got to admit, there's a couple of them that I haven't visited simply because then... They're not that attractive. They're more concrete than they are that natural rock formation. So a lot of them were created with natural rock and concrete, but mm-hmm. there, there's some which are just like concrete rectangles, and it's kind of like yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I don't, I don't really feel it. But as you say, it's it, it's not about necessarily. Even completing it, if I never complete it, I I won't necessarily be totally unsatisfied as long as I come away with something that I'm happy with. Yeah, yeah, and it's also when you do have some sort of project
1: in mind, it's all the other things that you find along the way. Where you know that that particular image may be something that you go out for, but then you find all these incidental things along the way, yeah. and so it's like this tree that branches out. and And for me, at least, the the motivating factor is usually that one image that got away. Like for example, earlier this year, I went on this backpacking trip and there was one particular photo that I really wanted to shoot. And down in these canyons that I photographed, these sandstone canyons with these orange tones on a cloudless day when the light bounces around down there, when the sun gets a little lower in the sky to the point where it bounces off one wall and then it reflects into the shadows on the other one, you get this really beautiful reflected light. But one little cloud, one tiny little cloud overhead will just send this very neutral light down into the shadows. And it just, it kills the light like someone flipped a switch. Yeah, and right. so there was one particular scene that I set up for when I went on this backpacking trip last year. And there were just clouds in the sky, not just one little cloud, but it just, it was enough to kill that light. And so I took a photo of the scene anyways, just as a bit of a sketch, just to see what, how I like the composition, but I knew it was not going to be great. But when I went back this year with that one particular photo in mind, I was watching the weather forecast, looking for that window of blue skies and calm wind, because it takes a fair amount of effort to get to that area. It was probably about a at least a 12-hour drive, and then it was about a three to four-hour hike to get into this area. And then then I'd camp there for a few days and hike back to my truck. But sure enough, I had the conditions I wanted and I was able to take that photo. But on that same trip, there was all these other scenes I found as well. So it's that one thing that kind of gets me excited to go out into the field, but then yep. finding all these other things along the way. And that's really, I think, what builds builds the portfolio images over the course of the year.
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely. I, I think that's a, a really good way of expressing it. It is those incidental things that go come along, even though you've got a you you've got a visualization in your mind about, okay, this is the shot that I want, but then it's the other side shots that just come along because the you, you see something and you go, okay, that's worth setting up and, and shooting.
1: Yeah. And I think also some of it is a matter of being extremely aware of your surroundings and not just having letting that one particular image you have in mind blind you from all the other opportunities around you absolutely Um, and so i think that's also a major factor of of knowing what you want to capture but at the same time remaining flexible and remaining open to everything around you and
0: and i think that's also a very important aspect of it Yeah. So seeing the opportunities as they turn up as it's, it's funny. I find myself the, my, my shooting process in the field is frame up the composition that I was looking for first and start working that work out. Then the work through a process. I normally do multi exposure. So I do exposure blending quite a bit because of the, Mm -hmm. the dark shadows and the bright highlights and, When I then have started into that process, my mind is already moving on. Okay, I want to move over there next because I can see that light is changing on that subject and that's where I want to move to. So I'm already planning that next opportunistic shot as I work through the process of shooting the shot that I'm on. Is that similar to you or do you do? It's different, different just from the standpoint
1: that... With large format, everything is so slow. And yeah. here, here's the thing: if I have a particular photo in mind that's a morning photo, yeah. I'll go out, I'll capture it. If I expose one sheet of film, and if it's a subject I'm happy with, I feel like I'm done for the day. Okay, it, it's it's really weird. It's oddly satisfying. I don't yeah. feel like I constantly. I'm still gonna go around. I'm gonna find things, but exposing that wants you to film, especially if it's a a subject I'm excited about. There's like this sense of just, oh, I'm good. It's when you're a kid and then like school's out. It's like, cool, school's out. I can relax now. I can do whatever. And so at that point, I would change my mindset to, oh, I'm just going to wander around. I'm going to scout. I'm going to look for things. And in that process, I'll find things. But it's very uncommon for me to photograph more than a couple subjects in a day, just because it is such an involved process. There is also one of the things I learned, and this was something that was recommended to me by a photographer friend who also works with an eight by 10 view camera. Mm-hmm. Um, it's this little framing device. It's it's called the, the artist view catcher. They're on Amazon and such, but like, Hi, it's okay. this little light gray plastic frame. And the thing about large format is you can't just test a composition by quickly setting up the camera and looking through the viewfinder. Yeah, you don't have a
0: back screen to
1: play with. Yeah, yeah, it's just it's such a long process. And also the thing that sometimes people are surprised about an 8x10 view camera is that even under the dark cloth, when you set it up, you can't necessarily see the entire image at once. There's like this bright spot in the middle. And as you move your head around you can move that bright spot. So you can see like the upper left corner, you move your head, you can see like the lower right corner. And so it's hard to see how a composition works as a whole. But Mm -hmm. I think there's an instinct that we have as photographers where if you see something that looks really good, you'll know immediately, or if you see something that works immediately that it works, you'll be able to spot distractions. And all it takes is putting a rectangle on a scene and then you can see how everything balances. Yep. So I, I carry around the RCU catcher. I have it in my pocket all the time. And if I see a subject where there's something about the the textures, the colors, the subject, whatever it is, I pull it out. I hold it up to my face. I put a rectangle on the scene and I'll know immediately if that is a subject that's worth pursuing. I'll be able to spot any distractions with my process. What I end up doing is I end up looking around until I find something, pull out the frame, see if there's a composition I like. If there is, then I start figuring out, okay, when's the light going to be good on this? Maybe it's a a subject I find at midday, but this photo of it just after sunset will be pretty good. So I just start cataloging all these things and I'll even write them down in notebooks. And based on that, then I kind of factor in the weather and I formulate a plan for, all right, so there are some high clouds today, maybe that photo I found in While I'm here in Death Valley and this situation where there's this cool foreground, maybe that would work. So I'm gonna go there a few hours early, set up for it. And it's weird because all day long, I am on my feet from sunrise until sunset, all day long, wandering around. I might take a photo, I might take no photos, I might take three photos. Yeah. But it's just that process of constantly going around. So I don't really work a scene in the same way that one can with digital. Whereas, as you said, the light's pretty good here, then over there and you do it. But what I do is I I pay attention to that. And then I'll see like the way that the light is hitting a mountain at a particular time of day at sunset approaches. And I'll think, okay, maybe tomorrow I'll go there. But I do get that sense of satisfaction after exposing a photo, which is nice. And I, I think that just, it's it's not feedback in terms of seeing how the photo turned out, but it's feedback in the way of feeling that feeling after
0: you take it. Yeah. And I think that's what keeps me going. Yeah. Where did photography start to become art as opposed to just experience? A lot of people, they start out with photography and it's recording what they see or what they sometimes what they feel to a certain degree. But at some point, As a landscape photographer, it really starts to click and go, oh, I'm not just taking this scene or this. I'm actually now trying to be more artistic in my compositions. I'm trying to change the way that I shoot to be more artistic than just recording. Okay, I can stand here at this lookout and there's the Grand Canyon or whatever it is, and I can take that scene.
1: Yeah, I, I think for me... There, when I was first in photography, I was looking for that perfect subject, that perfect tree set against the yep. like, perfect wall of sandstone and perfect light and this and that. And it was purely about visual elements. And you pretty quickly realize that there is no, that scene doesn't exist. You're not yeah. going to necessarily find that scene. But even if you did, it would be a rather hollow image because it doesn't, express anything. There's nothing really behind it. yeah. And I, I think it was probably back in 2013 is when I'm thinking of it, where I started thinking more about story. And, and I think that's when things started to shift a little bit for me. Mm-hmm. We're then seeking those imperfect subjects that tell a story that can connect with people on a more emotional level. Or it could be just some random subject I find. Like on on my desk here, I have a, a couple of of test prints I've made, and I'm looking at one right now, which is a photo I took in Death Valley, where it's this, it's a picture of the ground in Death Valley. Something mm-hmm. at my feet. There is this white rock that's shattered and and spread out, and it's it's set against these kind of darker blue tones of these other rocks. So this white rock with, that's shattered into all these little pieces. And it struck me as something interesting because that that rock was once part of the mountain that this is now at the foot of. And that rock had tumbled down. It was a uh-huh. solid rock. And it eventually, as it made its way all the way to the bottom, after I don't know how many hundreds of thousands of years or whatever, it reaches the salt flats. And then it disintegrates into tiny little pieces. Yeah. Um, yeah. So you start thinking about the story of this rock that went on this tremendous journey only to reach the final destination and to shatter into pieces and be destroyed and this is just something I found on the ground at my feet. It's a imperfect subject, but it's something that has story and I think when you have a subject that has story and it could be trees are certainly great for this they because they have the this living this living being as a tree or it could just be rocks it could be anything but I think when people look at that photo and they, identify some degree of story from that image. Mm. I think that's when things become a bit more like art. And for me, it's great where if a person looks at that photo and if they have the same feeling as they're looking at it, as I had when I captured it, when I spotted that composition, that's pretty cool. But if it evokes something else, that's cool too. But I think it's all about story. I think it's about imperfect subjects. And I think it's making taking a picture of something, but it extends beyond what it literally is. And it has a deeper sense of meaning to it because it has some emotional value. So for me, that's what it was. And and the transition was probably 2013 or so when I
0: realized the importance of that. Okay. I think you've become quite successful in communicating those stories in your images. How much of your success would you attribute to your ability to communicate well? Success is a tough one. I also sometimes ask, how do you define success?
1: What is success to you? For me, success is doing what I want to do for a living. Oh. It may not be the most glorious of livings. One, being able to, to pay the bills and and do what I like for a living. I, I think that's, that's a good definition of success. Not yeah. having a life that's not very stressful. I think that's also key. But I do think storytelling is key. And that's something I've also found the importance of with doing the videos where it's telling the story of the trip and bringing people along for the ride, not making things with YouTube and everything else, social media. It's oftentimes people will try to sensationalize things to try to get more attention. And obviously that works, but ultimately it's not necessarily something that's true to the experience itself. And so I, I think people can relate a bit to some of the videos that I do where it's, it's the honest story of the trips. It's not always gonna be the most exciting. I try to give that little slice of nature in the experience of being there. And I, I think that's something that people do that they do enjoy. And it's not going to be something that grows tremendously fast overnight, which is perfectly fine with me because I think I'd be rather uncomfortable if, if that did happen. Yeah. But I, I think or at least hopefully the same sense of storytelling in the photos, I I I would hope is in the videos as well, or something along those lines, where it's cohesive. Mm-hmm. Um, so for me, that's a big, a big part of that.
0: Yeah. Okay. I've noticed you put a lot of emphasis on the environment in your work, and the, obviously the environment's a very important thing to you. How do you balance the desire to capture something unique with the need to respect and minimize your impact on the natural environment?
1: I think a lot of it's a matter of not revealing places where I go areas that are quite sensitive. There, there are some
0: areas that can handle a lot of foot traffic. And there's a lot of areas that are obviously going to get foot traffic because they're those honeypot. Exactly. (laughs) And
1: one of the things I've seen through the years is that there are some of these smaller, beautiful areas that just get trampled and they get destroyed because they become some sort of internet fad. Mm -hmm. And it's oftentimes done by people that are well-meaning. They're not going there for the sake of destroying it. There's sometimes those as well, but it's usually areas that get loved to death and they just get trampled. And so I, I think the, it's important to be very, very cautious with what is shown I'm often a little bit misleading about where I am. I try to film things in a way where even for me, it would be difficult to figure out where I am. And I think one of the first things that can happen to an area before it gets destroyed is it's given a name. And because then people can refer to that area. When it comes to some of these canyons I go to, some of them don't even have names, uh, but the ones that do have names, I never use the name of the canyon. So. I'm always discreet about it because when you put videos out there, when you put pictures out there, you realize that there's a lot of people that just want to, I wouldn't say copy the stuff, but they'll see an area and they want to visit that area. And yep. that can have a very negative impact. Mm-hmm. And so it's something I've been very aware of through the years. And luckily a lot of the areas, these small areas that I, and, and these are areas I find on my own. It's not so when people tell me about it and I go there, but it's areas I find on my own by doing satellite research and finding canyons and stuff. Yep. And so you also have the people that will say, oh, it's gatekeeping. You, you can't, you can't <laughs> keep things secret. And everyone has a right of going there. I'm like, that's the first step in an area getting destroyed. And right. I, I went through all the effort to find the area on my own. I think as with photography, the more you work for something, the more you respect it. And so for some of these areas, yeah. if a person finds it on their own, they're probably going to respect it more than if they saw it on TikTok or something like that. Absolutely. So it's a matter of balance. And I'm not sure how things are over there where you are, but I would imagine it's got to be fairly similar. I think it's a universal thing about just
0: humanity. Yeah, there, there are sensitive areas here in Australia that have seen environmental damage because of over-traffic. There's obviously some other areas, as you say, which can handle it, the, the infrastructures set up to to deal with that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And I think the, it's interesting, there's there's quite a good community of photographers over here that work with national parks and wildlife organisations over here to try and work together. And it, it's one thing that I want to ask you about was how do you see your photography in relation to being used as a tool for environmental education and advocacy and what role can photographers play in promoting those conservation efforts? For me, I've seen it in in part successful here. I'm interested in your experience with that. It's not anything that I've
1: pursued. I think just because I haven't necessarily had The right opportunities with the right people in that sense. But I certainly understand the power of it. There are some areas here in the Western US that were basically saved because of photographers' work. The redwoods along the coast here in California, which are the tallest trees in the world, these amazing, amazing, massive old growth forests were threatened to be cut down, but because of the work of some of, I think it was Philip Hyde was the photographer. He produced, I I think it was a book or something along those lines, but basically showing the beauty of these areas, which led to them being, them being saved. And so there's definitely a lot of power in that though. I think nowadays an image doesn't have the same power that it used to. Oh, absolutely Um, not. Yeah, Because yeah, I think people just were inundated with images. We just scroll past them all day long. There is that that wow factor that people will get on images, which are probably going to be like AI generated or just fake images mani- manipulated
0: in some way. Yeah.
1: yeah. So it's different now than back, you know, several decades ago, where you see a collection of beautiful images and wow, I've never seen anything like this before. And yeah. they were real, they were authentic, and they were the actual experience of being there. And I think that is difficult to do nowadays, just with how there is such a mistrust in photography, and it doesn't have the same sort of impact as before. But if there was some opportunity for me to get involved in something along the lines, I would certainly be extremely happy to do so. I just haven't had the the right opportunity come my way. Very cool. Okay.
0: I'd like to talk to you a little bit about the lifestyle choice. You mentioned living a less stressful life and living the life that you want to lead as being really important to you. How did that come about for you and how difficult was it at the time to make the choice and make the leap from where a lot of people start with full-time work? Well, it really
1: started back in 2009 I had graduated from college in 2004. Yeah. I had a degree in graphic design and I was hired that summer to work at a camera store. And then several years later, there is the economic crisis mm-hmm. and the camera store I worked at. Not a lot of people are going to be buying cameras if they're losing homes and such. Oh, um, so I took that as an opportunity to volunteer to take time off work unpaid. I'm like, I'll just take off for two weeks. Don't pay me. I'll go off on a photo trip, and so it was if it wasn't for that, I don't know that I necessarily would have had the incentive to go out and travel solo to some of these areas and it's a weird thing traveling solo. I have the feeling that's something that that
0: you're familiar with as well um, a, a little bit i I do travel with my wife though so mm. yeah. Like, luckily she yeah. tolerates my photography <laughs>
1: that's good that's good it was i just still remember that first trip i went on where i'm just like i'm driving two states away and in my my forerunner loaded with food and stuff for being out there for a week or so and it was just a weird thing traveling solo to an area for photography but i liked it i embraced it and i kept doing that so i Got a little bit of a skill set. I got a taste of those photography trips. I produced some work that I was happy with. And I kept doing that from 2009 all the way up till about, eh, probably about 2017 or so, somewhere in that range. That's when I started realizing that as things were building up with the photography side of things, I'm like, at this point, I. Don't make it enough where I can do photography full time, but I yep. do want to transition at some point to doing photography full time. And what I could use is some more time to do things. And at the time I was still working at that camera store and I was working five days a week. And I decided, hey, let's go to four days a week. And yeah. so this would give me another day a week to to work on photography stuff, mostly stuff around, around the house and back end stuff, video editing, whatever. Yeah. Yep. And and that worked out well. And every year beyond that point, I'd take another day off the week and I figure I'm going to just ease this transition till at some point I'll be working one day a week. And then and beyond that, I'll just be doing photography full time. And I think it was, I was set to be around, I think it was 2021, I was set to be doing photography full time. But then we had the pandemic mm. and when the camera store closed, I'm like, I've already built up enough to do really what I need to do and to survive on this. And so that's when I took, when I made the leap to do photography full-time, but it's different than if a person's working a full-time job, they have a good, solid, reliable income. And then one day they say, Hey, I want to do photography for a living. And they quit their job and you don't have that infrastructure built up. For me, that would be incredibly stressful, but because I was able to prove it year by year, and to ease that transition You're way into it. Yeah. yeah. I knew that after when the pandemic like cutting, hit, cutting the rip cord and hoping for the best. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And when the pandemic hit, I'm like, all right, I got everything I need to do. I'm going to do this. And I haven't looked back since. I think at this point, I'm thoroughly unemployable by a traditional career because I just want to do what I want to do. And I think yeah.
0: that's, it's nice. Yeah. Very nice. Structurally, what are your sources of income? Is it mostly print and that that sort of work? Or is it is it selling commercially? How do you actually structure the business side of things? So one of the
1: things I started doing early on is I realized that I did not like YouTube ads because they only really pay if you play the game in terms of doing the clickbait and yeah. sort of sensationalizing things and the attention seeking, which was so completely opposite of what, of how I do things and and how, you know, what I feel comfortable doing. And so I, I realized, I think this was back in, in probably 2010, I started to get a little bit of a feeling of this. There was a, a video I had that it was picked up by YouTube. It got a lot of attention. And it was a negative experience. It made money, but it just made me feel not great. Uh-huh. And And so it was around, I believe, 2014, I decided I'm just going to shut off the ads altogether. I don't want to have any income from YouTube because that just, at a certain point, so many of the channels, they all become the same thing. They go to this clickbait direction. Yeah, And I just, I did not like that. So I shut off the ads mostly as a way of forcing me to do other things. And so I went in the direction of just putting a little notice on the video saying, if you enjoy this ad-free content, help me live my dream and set up a PayPal link. And, And that helped because it allowed me to generate the sort of videos I wanted to, but without trying to please the masses and without all the negativity that comes with that. So I've been doing that ever since 2010. Okay. Uh, with the PayPal stuff. And then Patreon came about. So I ended up signing up for that. That was probably back in I don't know, 2016, something like that. Yeah. So some of the income comes from that where it's just people that enjoy the videos and want to support me as an artist. Yep. And then in 2017, I started producing a print portfolio, which I've done every year since mm-hmm. where it's, I produce it right here in my house or it's 10 of my favorite images throughout the year. Yep, and I ship those all over the world. It's I do 150. It's an edition of 150 of them each year. It's a huge project to put together, but that's yeah. another thing. I don't make a lot off prints, like separate prints, but it's something that I offer, and if an order comes in, that's great. Yeah, I also have eBooks, and there are three that are a little bit more on the artistic, educational kind of side of things in terms of going through the process that I use as a large format photographer to find subjects, but in a way that would benefit people, no matter what it is that they're, what format they're photographing with. Yeah. Yeah. And then also I have some eBooks that I started doing about a year ago where I keep a written journal in the field and I have these handwritten notes in there that I scan. And then I put that along with the unedited film And so I call that the unpolished series. So it's a range of a mixture of things, but nothing commercial. It's all just stuff straight to the people that are watching the videos. And it's usually a matter of them enjoying it and just wanting to support me, an artist and somehow it all
0: adds up and pays the bills at the end of the day. Nice. Nice. One of the things everyone as a photographer struggles with, some people don't struggle with it because they can set their own prices, but How do you price your work? Do you have a formula that you work with or is it just a collection of, okay, looking around the market, this is what people charge and therefore that's what I should charge?
1: I think a lot of it comes down to if it's a matter of the print pricing, trying to find a price where it feels like it's worthwhile for me yep, and also a reasonable price for the person who's buying it. So it's just trying to find Get that. that yeah. And I don't think there's any real, I, I haven't done too much research to see what other people are charging, but in retrospect, looking back at it, it, it seems like it's in, law, in line with what other people are charging for stuff. Yeah. I'm not trying to target like some high end market or anything like that. Cause I, I think that's, it's boom or bust for some people. If they sell one big fancy print, yep. that's cool. How often is that going to happen? Yeah. Uh, and, and the other thing too, is like all the prints, I make them all myself. I have an Epson wide format printer, and I use okay. that for producing the print portfolios and all the prints. So I have complete control over the whole process. Yeah. Fantastic. Um, yeah. And it's, I think that's one of the big things for photographers. When you have that complete control, it, it's a lot nicer than working with a lab where in, in the past, my experience with print labs is I'd get it probably about ninety percent of how I wanted it, but there was mm-hmm. still that ten percent where it's not quite what I wanted. But is it worth it to go back and have another version made and this and that? And it's so yeah. I'd settle. And so when I can make the prints myself, I can send out what it is I'm actually truly satisfied
0: with. Mm, fantastic. Where did you pick up the black after printing? Because it's a it, it's another set of processes that you've got to get your head around that. For some people, it's quite arcane. Where did you pick up your experience with learning how to print?
1: It's just I I guess just trial and error. I've had a variety of printers through the years and I just learned to keep things fairly simple. I, I think some people get far too technical with it. Right. Uh, I have a I've had a variety of smaller Epson printers through the years. I print on Honamule paper and I just use the profiles on their website. I edit the photos with my monitor, the brightness about halfway. And yeah. what I see on the paper is what I see on the screen. I don't have any custom profiling. I don't have anything else. I've never profiled my monitor. I, I work on an Apple setup, which tends okay. to be pretty, pretty decent as is. Yeah, And that's just what I've used through the years works pretty well. And and so it's nice when there's no real surprises. Is, is is printing something that you do much of as well?
0: I don't have a large format printer. So I will do I use a lab for any prints that I do in terms of selling, but mm-hmm. uh, mainly because I don't have the the space either really to have the They're large massive. Format. They're huge yeah. printers.
1: I, I think the one I have is two
0: hundred sixty pounds or
1: something. It's yeah. a Big and it's not even like the really big ones. This one uses 24 inch paper. Yeah, the ones that use like the 44 inch paper. There's those ones are like pushing 400 pounds.
0: They're heavy printers. (laughs) But yeah, it's something that I've thought about. But yeah, it, it needs space. It needs that investment. And I'm also I'm relatively happy with what I've got from the the guys in the in in the print lab that I work with. They've been actually quite helpful in helping me get things set up to, to send to them. So they get a file that they can easily work with and, and give me what I need. And they, I do the odd uh, test print just on the small format that I've got at home to mm-hmm. make sure that, okay, yes, what I'm seeing on the screen is it's, and I'm using their the same profiles and whatever is the, the print labs using to give me a relative facsimile of what they're going to give me. So I've yeah. got a bit of an idea before I send the file off as to whether or not it's going to turn out okay. So when you see
1: the final yeah. print, is it the same sort of experience where you're like, this is exactly what I was hoping for? Or is there sometimes where it's it's
0: most of the way there, it's good enough, no one's ever going to notice Occasionally, yeah. There's things that, as we're all very critical of our own work, you go, "Yeah, there's this little portion here in this bottom left-hand corner." But if you don't look too closely and you don't know what you're looking for, you're not going to notice it. Yeah. Occasionally, you'll get that. But yeah, on the whole, the quality that I've got has been satisfactory at, at 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 minimum, and mostly, particularly when it goes. To large format in an in an acrylic or something like that. I've been more than happy with uh, with, with what they've produced. It's it's actually been when you see your work at, it, at that kind of scale. I'm just trying to do the conversion for, for inches. What's what's one and a half meters? Um, that's a, that's, a, that's a pretty big print. Uh- <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> so on the log edge, when you see them that scale, it, it, yeah, it blows you away. Yeah.
1: And, and and yeah, that's definitely a, that's definitely a pretty good size. I, for a, a while back before I got the printer, I worked with a lab and I would do some of the acrylic prints and stuff like that. And they were beautiful. They were really good, but there is also something about that. I've learned really to embrace about using um, the inkjet printer I have in the different papers yeah. to work
0: with. Yeah. And I think I, for I, me, don't get me wrong. Some... I don't think there's anything nicer than a really good cotton rag. Yeah. You know, it, it, the feeling of it, the texture of it, just the way it looks. It, yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah it, it, and I think for me, when I had these images that were taken on, on large format and I had some pretty good prints, some pretty large prints, I should say, made and it was printed on the, the Fuji flex and then face mounted to acrylic. And I'd have them put dye bond aluminum on the back. So it was sandwiched and it was nice and flat. And then I'd frame it. It was beautiful, but there was something about it where it was too clean. It was too pristine. Yeah, And I think that's one of the reasons why I've gravitated towards some of the fine art papers, my my favorite is it's Hanamule. It's the Photo Reg Barita paper. It just has this nice way that it behaves. And I, I think it it's a good match for working with film in, images in particular. I don't know if I'd have the same experience if I was printing digital images. Maybe I would prefer yeah. Fujiflux for that. But that's the whole thing about printing. There's so many different ways to go. That's exactly it. Um, and it just I mean, takes some experimenting.
0: Yeah. Did, uh, even in the same range. Of papers, the Hannah Mill has a, a number of different fibers that they use and you can get very different results even with the same producer of the paper just by using yes. a, a different style of paper that they've got. Yeah, for sure. I'm interested in how where you live has influenced how and what you shoot. Now, the how you shoot is obviously a little bit unique in in terms of being that large format did how that came about have anything to do with living nearby places like Xeon and and so forth?
1: Yeah, I think with large format and maybe people have a different experience with this, but for me, I don't find myself very inclined to photograph things that are truly local to me because you have to be in a, bit of a different mindset. You have to have no real distractions. You have to just focus on what you're doing. So Mm -hmm. even though there are some wonderful areas that are 10, 15 minute drive from where I live, where I can go and take pictures of some beautiful oak trees, maybe if it's a foggy morning or something like that. At the same time, I just, I'm not in that mindset unless I am a far enough drive from home where I can't where I'm trapped somewhere a little bit, I guess is what it comes down to. And and Zion being an eight hour drive away is this nice distance where I'm in my own little world when I'm there, I can concentrate on what I'm doing. It's a very, it's also a very concentrated type of photography where I can be very productive and take lots of pictures over the course of a week or so and by a lot of 12, but I I can, I can just be in the proper mindset that I need to be in. And the other thing that's nice about that is if something's not going all that well, let's say it's two, three o'clock in the afternoon and things aren't going very well. Yeah. I look at my watch. I'm like, if I were just to pack up camp right now and head home, it's not feasible. It, it would be too yeah. long of a drive. So I'm just going to stick through it the next morning. And then by the next morning, Suddenly I'm feeling better. Things are good. I'm feeling optimistic. So being a little bit a ways away from home, but not being too far from home where it's just such a horrible drive. Like if I were to go up to the Redwoods, which is within California, I'm in the very bottom of California, right near okay. the border with Thank Mexico. You. And driving all the way to Northern California, that's like a, I don't know, like a 15 hour, 16 hour drive. It's a long drive and it's a bit of an uncomfortable drive. So that's a little bit beyond where I prefer to go. So it's great that there are some areas like Zion and Death Valley that are just in that sweet spot where it's a little a ways away from home where I can get in that proper mindset. But at the same time, it's not too long of a drive to get there and back. So I think proximity is key. And I think also it just forces me to be in that that proper mindset, which is probably something that's fairly unique to large format just because so much more is involved in the process of taking
0: pictures. Yeah, fantastic. You mentioned earlier one of your more memorable experiences while you've been shooting. Have you had any horror stories where everything's not gone right? Oh, yeah.
1: <laughs> Those are the moments where things things feel very bad in the moment. You yeah. look back at it and it makes for a good story. So <laughs> yeah, there was a, a backpacking trip I went on in 2019. It's to a canyon that I had been to two two times before. So it was a pretty long drive to get there. I think it was probably about 14 hours of driving. The last two or so were off-road. You get to this trailhead and you hike in and i know exactly where i'm going i've hiked there several times before i know exactly where i'm going to camp and you hike down quite a bit in elevation cuz you start out on this mesa you drop down you go away as you drop down and then there's a river and then there's two river crossings and then on the other side of that second river crossing is where i'd be camping for the night and i get down to the river and it was it's normally just a nice creek i guess you would say But it was flowing a little more than usual. And so I was able to get across it and I wasn't too concerned. But when I got to the second river crossing, when I was 99% of the way there, I just had to get to the other side to find camp. I ended up inadvertently going for a swim with a pretty big pack on and getting swept down river because the area where I would normally cross had eroded a little bit, but you couldn't see because it was all underwater. And so I just plunged myself into deep water. And it's a little scary when you're getting swept downstream with the 60-pound pack on. Um, <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. And it was also a very hot day. And so I dried off pretty quickly. But then the next morning when I went into that, actually, I should say that night, my I have a satellite messenger, a Garmin in reach, which I can text my wife and stuff. Yep. And for whatever reason, it was not sending messages through to my wife. So I'm, I'm there at camp. I'm a little bit panicked. I'm like, if I could just send some messages to my wife and hear back from her, everything i will feel better. And all of a sudden there's no messages going through. So I'm start worrying like, what if something happened to her? I don't know. And then the next morning there was this, it sounded like a dinosaur in this Canyon, this bellowing loud roar that was echoing off the Canyon walls. And it was this huge bowl that was in the Canyon uh, cuz there's cattle in that area that are they're feral cattle that have escaped from ranchers and they live down in these canyons okay and so there's this huge bull that's just bellowing these it's moos it sounds like a T-Rex and <laughs> and then it it was it decided to run the other way from me but it very well could have run towards me yeah but yeah there there's stuff like that there was also this other hike I went on in Zion where there's this Pretty narrow ledge that you hike along. They have these chains in place to hold on to, mm-hmm. and I was almost done with it, but then there's this one area where there's some sand on the the sandstone, and I happened to have my hand just barely holding on the chain, and all of a sudden my feet just wipe out from underneath me. It's there's stuff like that where it's yeah, this is uh very uncomfortable in the moment, but thankfully there's not a lot of Stuff like that. Normally, it's all fairly calculated. And I've never had any issues with wildlife or anything like that. There's mountain lions in the areas where I go, but you'll never see them. They're very
0: elusive. Yeah. Uh, But it's there,
1: there's some stuff that can happen out there.
0: Definitely. Definitely. (laughs) What's photography taught you about nature?
1: I think it gives a wonderful excuse to get out in nature and in a way that is otherwise difficult to do in everyday society. And when you're out there, I think you just you appreciate the calming impact of nature yeah. of just going out and then hiking through a forest. Or I have some moments I've loved in Death Valley where I was just sitting on a shot waiting for sunset and I'm just laying down on these salt flats and watching clouds go by overhead. Um, and so I think photography really just gives an excuse to feel like a kid, to get out there, to wander around, to follow your curiosity and to explore nature. And that's something that once, once people go to college, get a job out there in the working world and you just, you get locked into this lifestyle and and the civilization we've built where we just, you just don't experience stuff like that. You don't appreciate it. And I think that's also one of the reasons why we've seen so much disregard for nature because people don't they don't experience it. So I I think photography is just a great way of getting out there and feeling a part of it. Yeah, fantastic.
0: Many people have challenges or creative blocks, some people call them, at various times. Do you ever experience that? And if so, what strategies do you have to stay inspired and engaged? I wouldn't say it's a creative block. I, I, I think because I
1: go on only a few trips a year, I'm generally pretty excited to get out there and, and see what I can find. Mm. But one thing that I, it does happen like clockwork pretty much every single trip. I call it the first day funk, where yep. the first day I'm in the field, I completely, I just, it causes me to rethink everything I'm doing. I'm like, why am I here? Why am I doing this? Is this worth it? (laughs) Yeah. It's just, and and it will hit me like a rock and I know exactly what's going on. I know that it will pass by morning. And I think it's being separated from the the routines of being at home. And it just, it's not, it's not a panic attack or anything like that, but you just, you feel like this tightness in your chest of, of just being like, I don't want to be here. I don't want to do this, but I know it will fade. I know as soon as I come up with a plan in terms of, oh, I'm going to hike into this area today. I'm going to see what I can find this and that. And once I get some photos out of the way, if I take a photo on that first day, that seems to kind of help with that. Mm -hmm. But it, it is like clockwork in every single trip I go on. So not a creative thing at all, but just a I think adapting to a new environment and also realizing how much work is ahead of me in terms of all the hiking and everything else involved. And also doing video at the same time where you have this feeling that someone's looking over your shoulder the whole time and okay, I have to, I have to take pictures that you mean that are going to be worthy of stuff I've done in the past and this and that. So that's been my experience. Is that something that
0: you've had as well? Occasionally, yeah. It, it, it's similar. On, on the trip that I'm on now, I haven't done too many actual deliberate shoots. I've shot some photos, but only two or three things where I've actually gone out explicitly to take shots. Mm-hmm. The first time I did it, it was like, ah, all of these they are okay, but they, they look a bit ordinary. They're not my best work, that sort of thing. But then... The The next day, it was totally fine. I was relaxed and into it and do, doing what I normally do.
1: <laughs> yeah. Now, if you give it some time, say a month has passed or so, and you look back at those first photos, does your perception change of those photos Sometimes. or do you still look at yeah. them and you're like, ah, I I'm still not feeling it?
0: yeah some, sometimes there's been times where yeah no, i'm still not feeling it and those things never really see the light of day again but there, there there are times where i've gone back months later and gone yeah i can actually work with this there's something i can do with it you know it, it might be a different crop it might be even just changing something simple like the temperature the color temperature a little bit and seeing what that looks like turning it black and white sometimes works and it's not about saving a bad photo with black and white which is the (laughs) i I guess the the accepted meme but yeah yeah. convert to black and white call it art yeah
1: that's it (laughs) but so so uh, is most of your
0: traveling in the the motorhome We've literally only just started. This is our first big trip in the motorhome. Uh, okay. So, yeah, mostly it's been doing car trips and going various places and wishing I had a motorhome so that I could stay there on site and step out and go and take that shot.
1: Yeah, and I would but think fun. that would be very beneficial just to have that home base where you have everything you need, everything's is clean, comfortable, and, and all Absolutely. that. So I, I think that would be a good thing.
0: Yeah, so far it's been a very positive experience. And both of those shoots were literally stepped out of the van, walked about five minutes from where I was parked to where I could take a shot. It's, those, those sorts of opportunities are, are really one of the reasons why we bought the thing.
1: Yeah, yeah, I have. I've had my Toyota Forerunner for nine years now, and I'll. I still have a fair amount more time with it, but. At some point, when I replace it, I I do want to get something that gives a bit more of the conveniences, but at the same time, can still fit in my garage and be a daily driver. And so, there's some great options out there now, but at the same time, I I do wonder if that will help. And I, I don't see why it wouldn't. If I can go on a trip and have a little bit of the first day funk, but have a nice, nice relaxing dinner and just stretch out and a little bit. Bed,
0: you
1: know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I I think that would be a, a wonderful thing. And, and also for those days when the weather isn't so great to have just like that nice clean indoor space where you can just relax a little yeah. bit and then wait but for not, somewhere whatever. Coming. <laughs> yes, exactly.
0: Yeah, I know exactly what you mean.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: What do you see as being the biggest challenge facing photography right now? I,
1: I honestly, I think it's just our sh- ever-shortening attention spans. Or, just it seems like everything that's out there is whether it's people wanting to go out and take pictures and feel like they're instantly producing that masterpiece of a work. Uh, I, I just think as a society, just uh, the attention spans getting shorter and shorter. And that's having a negative impact on things that's leading to, I honestly don't care too much about the AI stuff. It's just one more thing, one more tool that's out there. It's fine. If people are into that, that's cool. I I personally don't have much interest in it, but Mm -hmm. at the same time, you look at stuff like that and why go out and take pictures? If you can create something to get that, whatever attention on social media. So I, I think also with, with that comes the the general distrust of images yeah so I think that's another thing that's being fought. So I don't know I'm just the kind of person where I'm just like stubbornly going about just doing my own thing and and I don't really care too much because I just do what keeps me happy and I think that's probably a, a good lesson for a lot of people that are out there and just do what makes you happy and put the work in. And it's all about the long-term gains as opposed to the short-term gains. And having some degree of a goal is something that's nice and something to work towards. Yeah. Uh, but I just think that the ever shortening attention spans is just not really good for photography in general.
0: Mm. What do you say is the future of landscape photography?
1: That's a tough one. Um, honestly, it doesn't seem like the, technology is changing too much in the past several years or so so I, I don't yeah. feel like there's any big thing on the horizon in that sense so I don't know I it's, it's interesting because as digital has gotten better that's only caused a little bit of a resurgence of film in a way where it just seems like where we are is where things will be i I don't really foresee anything big changes in the works or anything along those lines but who knows? Maybe there'll be some
0: sort of surprise. What about you? What do you think? Uh, I I think it, it goes to a little bit about what you were saying about that choice mm-hmm. someone would make with using AI instead of going out into the field. I think for landscape photography, people will always want that experience and want to express themselves in terms of Not just showing people, hey, here's a wonderful scene that I've seen, but in terms of creating art and in terms of making something out of their experiences and trying to communicate the stories of those experiences, I think that's never going to go away. I think as much as some people might embrace AI or some kind of artificial creation, i i just don't again it doesn't interest me a great deal either i've played around with it dabbled with it had a look seen a little bit about what it can do and so forth but yeah i don't see it some people see it as a big threat i see it as a big threat potentially for commercial photography yeah if you were doing product photography or even modeling i think the could be existential threats to the modeling industry and the commercial photography area, but I don't see that for landscape photography personally.
1: Yeah. And I, I think it comes down to just the the human nature of people respect what they work the hardest for. And so something that you don't Definitely. work hard for is never going to hold that same level of, of satisfaction and respect. And I think that's something also that comes through in the work. If a, if a person works very hard for a photo and they put so much soul into it. I think that's something that people can see simply by observing it. And there's just, there's like a hollowness to something that people don't really work for. And and I think AI falls into that category where it's just, it's something, it's just eye candy, but there's no real soul behind it. And well, so I, I think it, it takes to create meaningful work you have to put the meaning into the work and I think that's yeah, something totally. that, that photography is always going to have
0: for me the big question with AI is whose work is it anyway yes exactly. you That a clever set of prompts but is it the machine that's doing the work or is it the work of the programmer that actually built the algorithm that the AI feeds off or is yeah. it all of the work that it was, in inverted commas, educated on.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's why it's just like this yeah. big thing where I'm like, I'll find a cool looking tree and I'll take a picture of it. It's, yeah, it's you know, all,
0: it's so much more <laughs> rewarding that way. I'd, I'd rather go and stand knee deep on a rock shelf in in the sea and take take a seascape than sit at a computer and and type a few words. Exactly. <laughs> what would you be if you weren't a photographer?
1: That's a good question. For the longest time, I, I worked at the camera store from 2004 through 2020, so it's a long time. That wasn't like it wasn't like a, a path where it's, oh, this is my destiny or anything like that. I don't know. It's a good question because outside of photography, I'm really not qualified for much. I don't know. I have no clue what I'd be if not for photography. I just, I don't think I'm the type that is interested in doing meaningless work which really excludes a lot of a lot of jobs so i don't know i'm glad that i fell into what i did because otherwise i have absolutely no clue
0: okay okay
1: are there any photographers you think i should be having a chat to a good buddy of mine michael strickland i don't know if you're familiar with him at all he's he works with eight by ten as well yeah yeah. yeah. And he's got this really cool print process of doing carbon prints. And I've always really enjoyed his work. Also another fellow photographer, a fellow large format photographer, I should say, Alex Burke. Yeah. He's also here in the States. And then there's an, another photographer who's doesn't have quite as much of a presence on social media. He's on, face, on Facebook <laughs> and uh, his name is Jim Becia, okay. And He's also a very talented photographer i think his company's name is like spirit light photography or something along those lines Um, but they're they're all very talented photographers
0: where i look at their work and i'm incredibly jealous which is a good sign absolutely (laughs) all right i got one more question for you and for many of my listeners it's the most important one i ask do you like pineapple on pizza i do
1: i i think within reason. It's but the kind of the classic Hawaiian style
0: pizza I'm good yeah, with the, the ham, cheese, and pineapple.
1: Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think some people are revolted by it in the same way. Yeah, I know. Revolted I mean, by by like Nickelback and stuff. But I think I think people <laughs> if you have such a aversion to Nickelback, I think people are secretly Nickelback fans. So I think the same could be true for pineapple
0: on pizza. So I don't know. I'm fine with it though. In in, in that context. Right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, <laughs> Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to talk to me today, Ben. It's been wonderful getting to know you. Where can people find you work?
1: So on my website, benhorn.com, that's B-E-N-H-O-R-N-E.com. And that links to everything else. Instagram, I still call it Twitter. It's Twitter and threads, all that. It's all linked to on there as well. But
0: benhorn.com is where you can find it all. Fantastic. Thanks, Ben. Sure thing. Thanks again for listening to Landscape Photography World. I hope you enjoyed the show and keep listening because I'll be joined by some great guests in upcoming episodes. You can find my work in this podcast at grantswinburnphotography.com. I'm also on Vero, Twitter, YouTube, Instagram, and Facebook. I'm Grantswinburn and hope to see you out shooting soon.